1: But today it's also associated with the trade route through North Pakistan and more generally the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative and the projection of Chinese power abroad. And as those two different ideas suggest, the term Silk Road in fact has many meanings, as uh, Professor Tim Winter has been explaining in his book The Silk Road, Connecting Histories and Futures. So, Professor, welcome to you.
2: Thank you very much, Owen. It's very nice to be with you.
1: And yes, it's, it's, it's fascinating reading your book because obviously th- th- the term has meant different things to different people. W- when was it first used?
2: Oh, well, even that's a, a sense of controversy, but it, it's typically uh, linked to Ferdinand von Richthofen in the 1870s, a German geologist and geographer who was in China um, in the early se- 1870s. He was essentially there looking at possibilities for a transcontinental railway line, um, but he was also a geographer in the, in the kind of more expansive sense in 19th century and was interested in histories of connectivity um, between Northeast Asia and China and so used the term within a publication. He published a five-volume set of books around using the term China as the as a, as a term to link those publications and it was published, it was used within those books uh, but not extensively and it takes a much, much longer pathway before its popularity and we can come back to that later if you like.
1: So in the case of his railway, for example, then, where where was A and where was B? Where was it going to and from?
2: So he was surveying in North America for the transcontinental railway line um, that was uh, joining up the coastlines there. And so with Germany uh, industrialising and possibilities of large scale conflict potentially looming on the horizon, there was obviously a high demand for coal in, in Europe. So he was sponsored by a number of companies and states, and I think it was a German state, to actually be doing some surveying in, in, in northwest China as it is today. And so uh, the possibilities was about how to move large scale coal deposits to Europe. And, and so that's one of the key reasons why we have this idea of, um, of a, uh, a Silk Road that gets depicted as a, as a single line uh, um, traversing the Eurasian continent from east to west.
1: Interesting, though, that it was the grubby business of coal and not, you know, spices and uh, various luxurious items.
2: Well, that was that was a. Do- so he was using both Chinese and European sources, and there was a there was evidence of of trade between regions and between market towns in different areas of uh, of both East West uh, or sorry East Asia and across to West Asia, and but but that idea of it, and and we can get into that, but idea of of a single line and the notion of, of camel caravans uh, that, that travel between um, uh, China and the Roman Empire uh, in a couple of centuries, or the f- in particular the sort of five centuries, the centuries uh, straddling the beginning of the Christian era, is a miskind of representation of that much, much, much more complicated history of, of uh, pre-modern connectivities across that region.
1: Right. So just to be clear, there'd been trade going on for
2: centuries. Correct.
1: Yes. I guess originally it would have been in luxurious uh,
2: items. Well, this is, <laughs> this is, and this is what I also try to unpack in the book: is that we we know there are Eurasian circulations that stretch over millennia. And this is much more than just a trade route or, or, or multiple trade routes. There is movements of religions, there's languages, there's technologies, there's ideas that are flowing across both sea and land across uh, different periods of history um, with the fall and rise of empires and so on and so forth, and obviously the migrations of peoples, I mean the, the spread of Buddhism and so on and so forth that we can document. So what happens with the Silk Road narrative as it becomes popular in the 20th century that all that complexity gets distilled erased and simplified down to this notion of of the trade and movement of particular commodities most notably silk and why silk because and of course there's evidence of silk trade between china and and um, and, the, and the roman empire but all that complexities of movements of ideas becomes encapsulated into this one term um, i mean it's even more meaningless when we talk of the maritime silk road um, but the ways in which that enters popular culture is something we can talk about later
1: Yes, I'm going to run through the different versions of the the Silk Road in in just a moment, but just sort of listening to you there saying that it's much more complicated than it seems. When the term the Silk Road started being used, you're saying from the 1870s, was there a purpose, a political purpose in its use? Was
2: there some meaning in its use? The term he he publishes it, but it only really enters European popular imagination in the nineteen thirties. So what we do often now is look back and and it's uh it's the depictions that get represented in in coffee table books and in museums of of talking about a golden age of Silk Road archaeology and research that took place in Central Asia and, and Northwest China at the beginning of the 20th century. So a lot of the collections of Of silk road exhibitions that are shown in north america or europe talk about that golden age of research however researchers at that time were not necessarily if at all using the term the silk road at all it only enters uh, both academic and public discourse in the 1930s and that's one of the themes of the book particularly part two is to say that it's not only as it enters the popular imagination in europe a discourse of about history. It's also a, a way to think about travel. So, so when it enters 1930s European radio and television, or mostly radio, it's about the ways in which, or not television, but um, uh, so film and movie depictions that are shown more widely. It's about the ways in which car expeditions were traveling across Asia to demonstrate the robustness of of uh, car manufacturing, for example, that was obviously at a particular peak in its pre-war Decades. And so those are one of the ways in which they were talking about uh, retracing the footsteps of Marco Polo by traversing from uh, Europe to East Asia and retracing the footsteps of the great camel caravans of the Silk Road. And so it's this folding of history, modern day exploration, um, as Marco Polo re-enters popular culture in the beginning of the 20th century, that get folded into the ways in which we think of the Silk Road as a more popular imaginary of of Eurasian history. And it's a history about connectivity rather than nation states, obviously, and that's important to say.
1: Yeah, so so now let's, let's run through them. You've mentioned quite a few already, actually, but let's just run through these different versions. And we'll start with Marco Polo. So remind us, when he was travelling and and what was the significance of what he did and how it was later interpreted?
2: So Marco Polo travels from Europe and uh, and Venice and leaves Venice in 1272. And he spends a number of years in traversing Asia and particularly uh, in Northwest uh, Asia and and entering into China. And so his diaries, uh, the the travels of Marco Polo, become one of the most important records of that encounter, not just of China, but obviously the, the cultures and the peoples that he met along the way. However, their accuracy and their validity as a historical record has been highly disputed. They were written up by his cellmate after he was imprisoned in Genoa, whence he returned. And so it was only in the 19th century that his accounts started to be taken seriously um, through new publications as an important historical record. And the knowledge that Europeans had at that point about Asia and in, and in particular China. So in that respect, he's become the quintessential traveller between Europe and Asia in the the modern Western imaginary. And we all know the various media depictions of Marco Polo. And so he becomes also a kind of metonym of that broader Silk Road history.
1: Yes, but you're saying that the idea of him as a Silk Road traveller wouldn't have become popular currency until, what,
2: 1940s, 50s? Well, he enters popular culture again really the 1920s and 30s he's taken up by hollywood he's taken up a number of plays and so that is also the time that the silk road enters popular culture as i've explained and so there's this interesting convergence between marco polo and the silk road that's it's kind of thought about in scholarship but only really kind of begins to circulate more broadly during that time and of course all of this really ends with world war ii and what happens afterwards in the division of east west through a, through the geographies of the cold war so the interest in the silk road really begins to wane during those uh, those decades after the second world war
1: uh-huh and, and then uh, more generally we should talk about not just travelling but trade and east west trade you've already said that goes back you know uh, much further back
2: absolutely yes and so and so there's lots of debates i mean i think i've uh, begun to summarize that the, this the Silk Road as a concept is a particular narrative and a particular imaginary of, of pre modern connectivities that cross land and ocean. And so there are interesting debates of where the idea of a Silk Road as a geocultural imaginary of Eurasia, uh, where are the starting points, both in terms of time frames and geographically. So for Japan, it starts, in, or the eastern terminus of the Silk Road is Nara. But today, once China takes over the authorship of the Silk Road narrative, for for China it's Xi'an for the uh, for the overland Silk Road, and so often we understand the eastern end of us sorry the western the European end of a Silk Road as, as southern Europe and in particular Italy, but we're also now hearing debates about a, uh, um, a Viking Silk Road that uh, obviously takes us up uh, up into the Scandinavian regions, and so this idea of a Silk Road is is infinitely extendable. And through Belt and Road, we're also hearing about polar silk roads and a silk road that reaches down to South America and Central America and uh, uh, speaks to those historical connectivities around silver trading and such. And so this idea is a—it's a narrative that triumphs both geography and history.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that, that suggests so many possible meanings, and, and, and there's yet more, because you've already mentioned the religious content that some people yeah. uh, put to the, the, the Silk Road. Could you talk us through that in more detail.
2: Again, this is an important part of the book, is to say that for the European imaginary, the Silk Road is about East-West connectivity. But within Asia, it's about an intra-Asian history of connection. And so that's histories of the spread of Buddhism, Asian languages, other religions in Asia. And so after World War II, the one country that was particularly uh, interested and retained interest in the Silk Road as a concept was Japan. So after uh, the events of the Second World War, Japan understood the need to rebuild relationships with uh, Asian counterparts and, and countries in Southeast Asia, but also obviously with the West, and so unesco in 1957 launched the major east west umbrella project for uh, mutual understanding between east and west now in the preparation for that japan identified a number of workshops and publications that it wanted to put forward as a contribution to that and there was a, 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 a one particular publication uh, that was prepared uh, for for workshops in both kyoto and and tokyo that identified this idea of the Silk Road, but somewhat uh, departed from the from the account of von Richthofen, saying that uh, a- pre-modern connectivities in Asia were much more than just East-West. It was about the Buddhist circuits. It was about the other types of language and cultural and technological flows, including across seas. So they identify uh, different uh, ways in which the Silk Road should be thought about, different geographies, uh, and, in, and in particular, the idea of a maritime route. And so what happens after World War II is that that, or during the 50s and 60s, is gradually over a number of years, the Silk Road gains popularity in Japan. And when we come to the 1980s, there is a major Silk Road exposition that takes place in in Nara, 83 tons of sand are uh, uh, brought in from from china to tell the story of the silk road nhk the national broadcaster of japan in collaboration with cctv the chinese national uh, state television channel makes the silk road documentary a 10-part documentary which is still understood and regarded as one of the most sort of uh, expansive and interesting ways to think about the silk road and then and then, what that does is also raise awareness in Japan about those peaceful and, and pre modern pre war connections with both East Asia and Southeast Asia that is not obviously it's about also repairing relations with, uh, with with the rest of the region and thinking about the ways in which Japan needs to be connected to the to the rest of the region that exhibition takes place in one thousand nine hundred and eighty eight. And at the same time, obviously, we've got then the early movements towards the end of the Cold War. And so UNESCO, from 88 onwards, and it was initially a five-year period, but that becomes extended for another five years, which ends up being a decade-long project, uh, launches a Silk Roads program, which is about trying to repair East-West relationships and rebuild trust and, and, uh, and um, the people-to-connectivities people of, uh, between the East and West, and so uses the idea of the Silk Road um, to do that. So launches a whole series of programs, academic conferences, video documentaries, television documentaries, co- uh, ec- museum exhibitions that happen in multiple countries over the span of a decade. And this is where the idea of the... Maritime Silk Road enters uh, international, uh, gives it a lot of international visibility to the concept of the Maritime Silk Road. But my, my point there is that that the, sorry, just to clarify that my point there is that where UNESCO take it forward at the end of the Cold War and is is the ways in which these Japanese scholars in the 1950s thought about the concept of a Silk Road, which, which much more thinks about it in terms of maritime routes, intra-Asian routes, uh, north-south routes across Asia, uh, movements of peoples and populations and languages and ideas that go between South Asia, Central Asia uh, and East Asia and and across um, from Japan down into, to Maritime Southeast Asia. So these geographies of the Silk Road begin to expand through the Japanese conceptualization of it and at the end of the Cold War this enters international cultural policy through this Silk Road UNESCO programme.
1: Does that mean that when Westerners tend to think of the Silk Road is exclusively an East-West relationship, that that is a, a, almost a colonial attitude, really, and, and that, you know, the Japanese version is different, and that is because it's uh, reflecting the, you know, a post-colonial view of it.
2: That's a complicated question. I'm not sure whether colonial was the right term, I wouldn't necessarily use that. It's, I mean, the Silk Road gets imagined in different ways from from different parts of the world. And so, for example, I've been to conferences... Both in India and Iran, and I see that Iranian scholars or Indian scholars and certainly Chinese scholars will say, "Well, this was the this is the real centre of Silk Road." geography. Uh, and this is where cultures, ideas, languages, technologies, religion flowed outwards from our country, from our region. So what we're seeing is kind of the re-establishment of ideas of cultural diffusion, which is um, central to a lot of historical theorizations from the 19th century. Those are, these are kind of restabilizing in a lot of debates about the Silk Road. And so for China, it's about the spread of Chinese culture. Japan uh, saw that their, their connections with East Asia stretched back many centuries. And so these, this idea of the Silk Road takes on particular inflections in different countries um, and folds it. And this is why it's a particularly powerful concept for China to roll out through its Belt and Road framework, because this is a kind of geography and time frame of, of shared histories and shared connections that are um, kind of being re-established in the 20th century. So for example, for Afghanistan, rather than being seen as it is in the West as a failed state and a war-torn, corrupt country... Afghanistan has kind of engaged in, and in obviously in very limited capacities, but with the Belt and Road framework, seeing that this is a productive way for, its, for itself to re-engage, seeing that uh, we were the center of global trade and particularly Eurasian trade at different moments. Um, And with the center of uh, Central Asia um, in different ways. And so China's Belt and Road Initiatives gives them a new kind of place within international affairs, and particularly when it comes to uh, ideas of connecting countries through infrastructures and so on and so forth. And it gives new visibilities for Afghan histories and and, uh, other countries such as Iran to um, to have visibility on the international stage.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: I, I'm quite struck that everyone seems to want to be associated with this. You know, the Japanese, the Chinese, there's interest in the West, even UNESCO. I mean, if a UN official is uh, using a phrase, it must have virtually no controversial content whatsoever at, uh, at the international power politics level. So, does that suggest that this Silk Road phrase is viewed positively virtually everywhere?
2: Well, yes. And, and the, the bit I've left out of my story so far is that what happens in the 20th century, and particularly after the Second World War, and particularly at the end of the, end of the Cold War, is the Silk Road narrative becomes, becomes a history of internationalism. So globalization needs its own narrative. And, and scholars were uh, scrambling to think about how do we think about globalization in historical terms at the end of the Cold War? And what happens when UNESCO take it up and other uh, UN agencies through those 1990s and 2000s is that it picks up on the idea of the Silk Road as a history of intercultural dialogue, cosmopolitanism. So you asked about Marco Polo earlier. He's an embodiment of the cosmopolitan figure that is able to cope with East-West and all the complexities along the way. And so he becomes a celebrated figure of intercultural dialogue between east and west, and this is what a lot of the publications the museum exhibitions and obviously the museum collections and obviously it's it 's a, a what 's in the archives of museums and libraries in Europe and in in the exhibitions that that took place since the 1990s is a material culture that was found in in Central Asia that tells us through the manuscripts and through the Buddhist frescoes of those complex interactions between South Asia, East Asia, between Europe, between Rome, Greece, and Central Asia and so on and so forth that are documented through this material culture And it's that that then creates this historical narrative of deep interconnectivities that then in the 20th century becomes associated with peace, harmony and intercultural dialogue and all these discourses that international agencies use. And that's why it becomes such a powerful concept for UNESCO to use. And of course, what then happens is that states see this as a productive way for them to engage, such as Japan, countries such as Oman who sponsors a maritime silk road voyage during 1991 which is a ship that leaves venice the folk al salama that leaves venice uh, flying a un flag travels through the suez canal comes down through the indian ocean and comes across to through the south china sea to China and then on to Japan. And this is carrying a series of scholars and and journalists that last six months. And stories are written, newspaper stories and media stories all are written about the Maritime Silk Road as a narrative of historical peace and connectivities and the peaceful Indian Oceans. Stories of Zhang He, the 14th century uh, Chinese admiral, sorry, 15th century Chinese admiral, who sails down from China down across the Indian Ocean. And this is taken up by UNESCO as a productive way to to rebuild relations after the Cold War. And this is what we're seeing happen again in the era of Belt and Road.
1: The way you describe these different cultures meeting and the interaction and the the, the various sort of uh, different ideas, mixing and so on, all that runs up against the current idea of cultural appropriation being a bad thing. So is, is that now becoming an objection to the use of the phrase Silk Road and giving it a negative connotation?
2: Well, that's a very interesting question. And and cultural appropriation speaks to the issue of someone taking someone else's culture. And what we've got used to in the 20th century is the idea, and obviously through to the 21st, is the idea of cultural ownership and cultural property and the ideas of who owns the past. So the ways in which the Silk Road is being framed today and has been for a long time, and again, it's very useful for UNESCO, but then it becomes useful for something within the Belt and Road Initiative, is the idea that it's a shared heritage and a shared history. So that it's something that is not owned by one particular country, and others can buy into it. So when we think of Cultural diplomacy and soft power—that is framed as the ways in which one country might be trying to export its uh, cultural or social social goods to another country or another region, and the ways in which others might be buying into the values of the, and the uh, those cultural products associated with that. But the, but the Silk Road, as a geocultural imaginary of history, works in other ways. It doesn't kind of uh, speak to those national senses of, of a cultural past in the ways in which other we often think about history and culture
1: but again I at mean, the beginning i use the word orientalist and that must be a source of objection to to yeah a lot of what you're discussing
2: i think what china's definitely doing is uh, reframing how we think about the silk road so you've pointed out that from europe it's often seen as seen as an east west history of his, his history of east west connectivity uh, Is associated with key figures such as um, Marco Polo, and, and that's not the discourse that's in China. Zhang He or um, Zhang Xian are these kind of other figures, or Faxian are kind of key historical figures that are associated with Silk Road histories. And so so the, as each as a number of countries take up the Silk Road, they, they kind of claim it in different ways. Now, the degree to which that becomes internationally visible is an interesting question. There have been since, since the launch of Belt and Road, there have been a series of documentaries made by Western media countries, such as National Geographic and others, that now recenter the Silk Road story around China. So the, the idea of a maritime Silk Road, you can find this on YouTube. Um, this has now been uh, very uh, interestingly kind of um, on the part of uh, on China very successfully re-engineered around the idea that um, this is a story of China bringing various cultural goods to the world, um, such as porcelain, so on and so forth. Um, so, this, so this idea of orientalist and, and countering that, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of narrative of history that doesn't necessarily f- easily fit within those categories.
1: So, so yes, yeah, so, so now the Chinese are using the phrase as basically part of their power projection, part of their soft diplomacy.
2: Part of the book is to argue against ideas of soft power. I think there's a lot more going on with that, or going on in this space of uh, the Belt and Road, Silk Road nexus. And just for audiences, for those in the audience who may not be familiar, the, the China's idea is of framing this Belt and Road initiative as the revival of the Silk Roads for the 21st century. Belt and Road is often discussed as a geoeconomic or a geopolitical project. And so I did a book in 2019 published by Chicago called Geocultural Power, The Revival of the Silk Roads, China's Revival of the Silk Roads for the 21st Century. And so this Silk Road book very much builds on that. What I'm also arguing in both books is that this Silk Road narrative and the ways in which the material consequences of this are partly and in large part need to be understood in terms of world ordering. And this idea of the ways in which history is being used is much more than just soft power. We've seen this in the context of the Ukraine war and China, uh, Sorry, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the revival of a potentially the ways in which people are understanding Putin's motives of a pre-Soviet Tsarist Russia. So I think what we're seeing today is a new era of geocultural politics. Uh, we've seen uh, years of neo-Ottomanism play out in, in Turkey uh, under Erdogan. Uh, we've got the Hindutva movement under Modi in India, which is an Indian uh, Hindu civilizational narrative that stretches beyond the c- current borders of the nation state. and. China's concept of a civilizational state is very powerful today within China. This connection of the modern nation-state back to back to a, a deeper, much long-standing civilizational past, and the Silk Road internationalizes that. And so we've got these broader imaginings and re, reframings of, of geography and history that are playing out and, and shaping international affairs, particularly across the Eurasian landmass. And so to, to to consolidate that around just ideas of soft power, I think misle- is, misunderstands really what's going on here. And that and that's how we need to think about uh, ideas of the health Silk Road, the digital Silk Road and those types of initiatives that have only gained further currency in some respects since COVID.
1: Sorry, so just to be clear, why, what is the objection to the phrase soft power in relation to what we're talking about?
2: So, soft power is obviously it's a concept from Joseph Nye, and it's it's a term that often is used, particularly within kind of political theory, and it's it's differentiated obviously from hard power. It's about the the association with the values and ideas, but often it gets talked about the ways in which cultural goods and social goods are exported from one country to another and the ways in which those values associated with those goods are taken up by others. So it's about uh, rather than, I mean, you can obviously think of carrots and sticks and it's about um, rather than coercion, it's about um, cooperation and all the kind of uh, different forms of engagement that are, that are uh, contrasted with forms of hard power. But I think what we're seeing in the Belt and Road, Silk Road nexus is this constant, the folding in each folding into each other of, of different forms of power, power in the 21st century has changed. Apart from Putin, you don't invade countries to, to construct your power on the international stage. Power now is about multi-sector connectivities, and the Belt and Road has five key pillars to it. And the people-to-people connections is one of them. And so through the digital Silk Road, the health Silk Road, there are infrastructures, public health infrastructures being built that have consequences and and material implications that don't really fit in those categories of soft and hard power.
1: Okay. And and one thought about the Chinese attitude to the phrase, I mean, I think you did mention um, the United States right at the beginning, but basically the US has no role in the Silk Road and that may be attractive to China.
2: Indeed, indeed, of course, yes. And and there's various discussions and debates around uh, whether we're entering into a new Cold War. And I think And also in relation to your previous question, does this represent something just that can be contained within the the concept of soft power? I think there's something fascinating going on around the concepts of East and West. They're shifting and altering again. So in the long 19th century, Europe and and European imperialists in particular, as well as internationalists that contributed to ideas of a modern and industrialized and enlightened West saw the Eastern Other and and, uh, the Orient as the other of the modern West and found that in Asia. And so those geographies of East and West were constructed in those terms. But obviously during the Cold War, these geographies shifted to a Soviet East and capitalist West, whereby these categories were redefined in more politically explicit terms, so that East and West was first and foremost about ideological struggle and geopolitical blocks. But today, China's rise is a challenge in many respects, to a liberal world order that's been constructed in that vision of the United States after the Second World War. So in the Western imaginary, then, the East returns to East Asia. But in the Belt and Road Initiative, that's branded as a revival of the Silk Roads for the 21st century, the Chinese geopolitical ambition, as well as its cultural internationalist ambitions, put back into play the language of East and West that's oriented around Eurasia. Which from Chinese perspective decenters the US from both world affairs and in world history and decenters a kind of liberal world order that's been built and framed around the Atlantic. So the Indian Ocean is a is a geography that comes back in through the Belt and Road Initiative through forms of South South cooperation in a way that decenters the Anglosphere. And that's in some respects why we're seeing Responses such as the Quad and the Indo-Pacific as initiatives that between um, Australia, the UK, India, and and the United States as a way to respond to this BRI.
1: So, so I, I imagine you came into all this study with views of the way history is used by by those in power to either you know manipulate situations or hold on to power or challenge others or whatever. Has your study and research changed your view of the way history is used, or has it confirmed your view? What has it told you about the relationship between interpretations of history and power politics?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, so I mentioned that uh, I did a previous book with uh, in 2019 Geocultural Power. In that book, I was historicizing the Silk Road as a concept, and I knew that it was a much more complicated story than I realised, and and I didn't have space or time to go into that and hence why the second book was written that i was able to uh, flesh out this complexity in a lot greater detail and so you are you're right. My my thinking is continue to evolve, and what we're seeing is, and I do like that term, geocultural, because it it kind of like helps us rethink what's going on today. We use these terms empire both historically and thinking about what's going on today in the world, um, but I think there's problems with those, and those those terms have particular analytical baggage both in academia and outside, and so. I mentioned earlier that this use of history, both uh, in West Asia, Turkey's neo-Ottomanism that's been uh, developed over the last decade or or, or longer, how Russia is trying to re-establish itself in world affairs today, what India is doing, the rise of civilizational state politics means that countries, and obviously what we're seeing in Saudi Arabia and Iran, there's complicated imaginings of history that are shaping world affairs that don't necessarily get talked about enough. And certainly we, we have those uh, ideas of geopolitics, geoeconomics, and what I'm trying to do is say that there's something going on around this kind of scale and the use of history that we need to understand and bring into dialogue with these other ways of thinking about uh, international relations and international affairs today and how power is shifting um, in world affairs. And and again, again, I think that speaks to your question about soft power. There's, there's a lot more going on here that that doesn't necessarily get understood within, a, within the, the, the conventional discussions of soft power within academia.
1: And, and and help us look ahead then and as we close this. I mean, you've brought us pretty much up to date with the use of this term quite recently and how it's changing, I mean right up to now really. So how do you see the Silk Roads of the future?
2: Well, obviously we are in a particular moment where countries and in particular China is is re internationalizing after COVID. So I think one of the worrying concerns of COVID has been the acceleration of populist nationalisms as countries seal borders. Um, I am a believer in internationalism and the values of that. And I think we have a w- very worrying trends around populist nationalist uh, that's uh, that's uh, uh, on the rise across different regions and countries. So the Silk Road is a productive way to build multiple forms of dialogue, dialogue between countries. But what it also speaks to is both internationalist and nationalist ambitions. And so it's a complex uh, set of relations. And so there's a lot of concerns about what China's ambitions are, particularly I'm sitting in Singapore, and there's definitely anxieties uh, about where China's trying to push these ideas of both history and futures. So there's tentative engagement. There's reasons to be thinking, okay, these are productive uh, discourses to be uh, advancing and building relationships around. But yes, there's a very uh, clear awareness, um, particularly for countries such as India, that this uh, is creating new complex cultural politics. Um, and I think it's I think that certainly that requires further research, which is a space I'm trying to think about now, of how we understand this kind of use of history, how it figures into uh, multiple forms of power projection um, across regions in the future.
1: So, really, you're saying that you're not quite. Sure, what direction it will take, but that the phrase will
2: continue to be important. I think so, and I think for organizations such as UNESCO and other UN agencies, it's highly productive and for good reasons. It does offer a way to think about uh, uh, histories and culture and religion that crosses political and geographical and land ocean boundaries and I think that's extremely important in the 21st century so the ways in which we can understand history and and create those relationships so so that people don't think of history uh, in terms of just the nation state uh, is an important initiative the complexity comes in the ways in which the funding for those projects and who drives those agendas comes and 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 China's engagement is productive in many ways but obviously it raises concerns for other countries so it's, it's it's an interesting space to watch.
1: Yep, it is, and uh, it's been a very interesting interview, and it's a great topic. So thanks very much for
2: talking us through the Silk Road. Thank you very much, Owen, a uh, very enjoyable uh, discussion with you.
1: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?